It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. I just want to begin by reading two headlines at the top of Politico this morning. These are both news stories. These are not opinion columns, analysis, bloviation. The first one, Chuck Schumer is thinking big. Gridlock Senate, be damned. The second one is, Biden wants to cement a governing majority. His Build Back Better bill is his plan to do it. Now, don't they sound like DNC press releases? Look, the first story is an interview with the majority leader. That's fine. Of course, he says, we're going to do this, that, and the other thing. We have to be ambitious. That's fine. I have no problem with the story. The second one is a look at the the $2 trillion plan that Biden is trying to push through. Also a legitimate subject. But can you imagine? I mean, forget about the Trump years. Can you imagine... George W. Bush getting that kind of headline? Can you imagine Ronald Reagan getting that kind of headline? Uh, on the Chuck Schumer's Thinking Big, can you imagine, oh, I don't know, um, Paul Ryan is thinking big. Gridlock, Congress be damned. John Boehner is thinking big. Mitch McConnell is thinking big. Well, we know a lot more about what Boehner thinks thanks to his uh, revealing new memoir. Um, I just think it, it, it for those who feel like the media, who are so hard on Trump and the GOP, are now rolling over for Biden and Democrats. Those kind of headlines, and headlines matter, folks. They set the tone, really do matter. Well, you all know my views about ex-celebrity who wants to get some publicity by saying, you know, I might just run for such and such an office. Matthew McConaughey, whoever, right? So Axios has a story now. Caitlyn Jenner is talking with political consultants as she actively explores a run for governor of California. Axios. uh, Now, there is an opening here because Gavin Newsom, the Democrat, is about to face a recall election. And yes, I remember 2003, Arnold Schwarzenegger never held public office. The Terminator movie star uh, ended up being elected as governor of California. But I, I think... And I'm not saying Jenner isn't a smart person, but and, and of course, California is a very woke state. So maybe the fact that the former Olympic star Bruce Jenner, who is now Caitlyn Jenner, who was on a reality TV show about the Kardashian family, could be considered a credible contender. I don't know, except I just don't think she's going to run. Right. I just think it's, oh, you talk to some consultants. Yeah, I'm considering it very seriously. I could be proven wrong. We shall see. Uh, have you heard about this Spirit Airlines fiasco? I mean, I, after reading this story, why would anybody want to risk flying on Spirit Airlines? Yes, it's a budget airline. So there's this family from New Jersey, um, went to visit relatives in, in Florida, flying back, and was kicked off the plane on the ground of masks. And I think everyone else was kicked off the plane as well. So it's a couple, the woman, uh, it's Ari and Avito Eisenberg. The woman is pregnant, seven months pregnant. They've got their two kids, Daniel, who's seven, who has special needs, and Ricky, who is two. And, you know, Spirit put out a, uh, a tweet saying, we are aware of incorrect information circulating about Spirit Airlines flight, such and such. The flight was delayed due to the adults in the party not complying with the federal mask requirement. So what actually happened is the father was wearing a mask. The mother was wearing a mask. The problem with the seven-year-old is that he is subject to seizures, uh, the mom explained. Uh, she was trying to have him wear his mask, but he was, uh, you know, but not at every minute. And then the crew member comes over and says, I'm going to have to ask you to leave. The pilot wants you off. We're wearing masks. Well, she isn't, pointing to a two-year-old sitting on her mother's lap eating yogurt. That's a great COVID threat? Come on. And then they changed the tweet to say, well, they took out adults. 
because obviously it was a two-year-old who wasn't in compliance. So the only way they could find to deal with that situation is to kick the entire family off the plane. I mean, we've all had our problems with various airlines, but this just strikes me as beyond egregious uh, and a big and well-deserved black eye for Spirit Airlines. All right, a lot of stuff to cover here. Let's get right down to it. Number one, COVID. A lot to say about COVID. Anthony Fauci was on uh, Morning Joe uh, talking about whether there's going to be a fourth wave of the pandemic. And Dr. Fauci says, as long as we keep vaccinating people efficiently and effectively, I don't think that's going to happen. That doesn't mean we're not going to see an increase in cases. He says, it remains to be seen if this uptick in cases will or will not explode into a real surge. Now, that's fine. It's encouraging. But the fact is, uh, I think about 900 people died of COVID in America yesterday. Uh, there were 65,000 new cases. Is that far less than the 200,000 plus at the peak? Yeah, of course. But it's still 65,000 new cases. Um, National Review has a piece on Rochelle Walensky, who is uh, Biden's head of the CDC. And I must say, I've noticed this, that she keeps saying things and has to walk them back. And so the suggestion is maybe when it comes to public communication, uh, she's had a really lousy week. Maybe she's just not that good at it. So five days into the Biden administration, Walensky said she didn't know how many doses of the corona vaccine the country had. And then she said, you know what? Um, you really only need to be distanced by three feet. Then she went back to the previous six feet and then three feet again on social distancing for schools. And look, you know, she'd taken office. There was a lot of pressure. Okay. Uh, but then about 10 days ago, she came out with, I'm going to pause here. I'm going to lose the script and I'm going to reflect on the recurrent feeling I have of impending doom. We have so much to look forward to, so much promise and potential where we are, so much reason for hope, but right now I'm scared. And that, of course, set off a tremendous backlash by people who say, look, things are getting better, and she's talking about impending doom. And look, cases are up. I've seen figures anywhere from 7 to 17%, spring break, warmer weather, and all that. Uh, at the same time, the seven-day moving average of new deaths is down, the seven-day average is down to 525, lower, lowest it's been since October. So that's good news. Um, and so then, to top it off, on March 30th, Rochelle Walensky said, our data from the CDC suggests that vaccinated people do not carry the virus, don't get sick. Uh, it's not just in clinical trials, it's real-world data. And so she's basically saying they can do whatever they want, because they're not going to get it, and they're not going to spread it. The next day, the CDC came out and said, uh, never mind, and said, well, you know, the data's not clear, so you got to be careful. And that was, of course, right before April Fool's Day. So, you know, I, I understand her saying, you know, vaccinated people are, could carry, there's some chance they could be carriers, even though they can't now get the disease themselves. But it's just it's just a head snapping back and forth and back and forth. Um, and then here's the, here's the kicker on National Review. On Good Friday, the CDC issued official guidance saying that travel is okay for the vaccinated. Great. But back on February 16th, uh, the CDC said, delay travel and stay home to protect yourself and others from COVID-19, even if you are vaccinated. And by the way, if you do it two days before Easter, people have already made their travel plans one way or another. Okay, so here's a Gallup poll. Um, there's a surge in Americans' satisfaction with the rollout of the COVID-19 vaccine because now, even though there continue to be huge problems, I mean, I keep reading about them and hearing about them. Um, in Hagerstown, Maryland, for example, it's about an hour 
north of D.C., um, people waited for as long as seven hours because they were told you didn't only need an appointment, you could just walk up, and then there weren't enough doses, and a lot of people waited for hours and were turned away. That's not the way to do it. So there's that. But according to Gallup, people are not only um, more happy with the availability of the vaccine, but they're more optimistic about the state of the virus. So according to this Gallup poll, 35% of American adults now say they're very or somewhat worried about contracting COVID-19. That's the lowest since April of 2020. 22% say they're very or moderately worried about access to hospital services. Only 14% are worried about access to COVID tests. So that 35% who are very or somewhat worried is down 14 percentage points since February and well off the record high of 59% of Americans who were concerned last summer. Well, last summer, I mean, things were out of control. And we were in a summertime surge that nobody expected. And of course, people were worried about it. Here's the partisan split, inevitably. Half of Democrats continue to be very or somewhat worried about getting the disease, compared with 17% of Republicans and 30% of independents. Uh, and here's one of the reasons why you might see such disparate results. Uh, I'm seeing a news story here that says nearly half of new coronavirus infections nationwide are in just five states. So, you know, if you in the other 45 states, maybe you have reason to relax. Again, I still think people should wear masks in public places, practice social distancing. A couple more months of this and there'll be enough Americans vaccinated where we really can relax. Those five states, New York, New Jersey, Michigan, which is a real hot spot, Florida and Pennsylvania together reported 44% of new infections, 197,000 new cases. All right, number two, staying with this subject, the whole battle over vaccine passports. New York Times has a piece saying, look, this is happening in various ways. Um, in New York, uh, there are electronic verification apps uh, being offered to people who are vaccinated in stores, certain stores, so they can easily access their vaccine status as needed. Around the country, businesses, schools, politicians are considering vaccine passports. What is it? It's digital proof that you were vaccinated as a way of reviving the economy, getting Americans back to work and play. Businesses especially fear that too many customers will stay away until they can be assured that the other patrons at their business, store, you name it, have been inoculated. But this is raising, says the Times, ethical and legal questions. Can businesses require employees or customers to provide proof that they've been vaccinated when getting the virus is supposed to be voluntary? I mean, we all think people should get it, but it's not mandatory. Can schools require that students prove they've been injected with what is still, officially at least, an experimental program? the way they require vaccines for measles and polio. I mean, you're in even first grade. You can't be admitted unless you can show you got the measles vaccine, the polio vaccine. Why is it such an outrage to say this should extend to the coronavirus? And can governments mandate vaccinations? Certain states don't like this. Uh, states with Republican governors, uh, such as Texas, Florida, and are either have moved or are moving to say this is not going to be allowed in their state. But legal experts say the answer to all these questions are yes. Um, you know, that, that government government entities, at least like school boards and the army, can require vaccinations. Um, this all stems from a 1905, this is interesting, Supreme Court ruling 
that said states could require residents to be vaccinated against smallpox or pay a fine. Uh, Justice John Marshall Harlan, community has the right to protect itself against an epidemic of disease which threatens the safety of its members. Private companies, you know, you can't discriminate against on the basis of race or ethnicity or sexual orientation. But beyond that, they're pretty much free to decide who they want to do business with and who they want to employ. Uh, now, states could pass laws saying private, private companies can't do X, Y, or Z. But, you know, you've got these things moving forward. So universities, Rutgers, Brown, Cornell have already said they will require proof of vaccination for students this fall. I'm sure many, many other colleges and universities are going to join what I believe will be a stampede. Uh, and you know what? You can protest it. You can say this is against my moral views. But if your kid has gotten into uh, or is already a student at one of these schools and they say they need the vaccine, you go get the vaccine. If it's available, I mean, you can't, the only time you, your situation in which it would be unconscionable to do it is if there aren't enough doses available. It looks like by May, now I guess Biden announced that two weeks earlier, he had said April 27th is the date, but he's saying now, or I think it's today, um, everybody is at least uh, entitled, everybody over the age of 16, without a pre-existing condition, without regard to what um, kind of job you have, um, is now eligible to register in their state or county or city for the coronavirus vaccine. Doesn't mean you get it right away, and there's going to be a crunch, and there's going to be a crunch for the next couple of months until we work our way through the population. The Miami Heat this week became the first team in the NBA to open special vaccinated-only sections for those pro basketball games. Uh, Mark Tushnet, a law professor at Harvard, says, quote, on the face of things, requiring proof of vaccination seems a lot like no shoes, no shirt, no service. Obviously, it's a little bit more complicated than that. But I do think we're moving in that direction. And look, I understand this has become a kind of a culture war issue and that many Republicans think this is big government overreach and all of that. But it's really businesses and sports franchises and schools and colleges and universities that are taking the lead. And they have the right to do this. I mean, as long as it's not a financial issue, and most places now you can get a vaccine for free if you have any kind of insurance. And I'm sure if you're poor and you don't have insurance, exceptions will be made where you don't have to pay. And if by May, June, July, there are enough doses that anybody who wants one can get it, the only remaining question will be people who don't want it. And that is their right to refuse it. But it certainly hurts the overall American effort to get to 70, 75% herd immunity when we will all be safer as a result. Don't go anywhere. More BuzzMeter coming your way in just a moment. All right, story number three. Matt Gates still in the news. He remains under Justice Department investigation for allegations of uh, sex trafficking of a 17-year-old girl, allegations of paying women for sex, although it has to be proven that it was for sex and not just, you know, fine dinners and hotels and travel. Uh, he hasn't been charged. He's, he's denying many of the charges. The New York Times has a story saying that Gates, the congressman from Florida, one of Trump's most vocal allies during his term, even once signed a letter nominating President Trump for the Nobel Peace Prize. In the final weeks of the Trump presidency, Gates actually looked for something in return. He privately asked the White House for blanket preemptive pardons for himself 
and unidentified congressional allies for any crimes they may have committed, according to two people told in the discussions. Now, at the time, we didn't know that Matt Gates was under investigation by the Trump DOJ on the allegations I mentioned. Uh, and Gates was publicly calling for broad pardons from Trump to thwart what he called the bloodlust of their political opponents. It is unclear, says the Times, whether Gates or the White House knew at the time about the inquiry or who else he sought pardons for. Gates did not tell White House aides that he was under investigation for potential sex trafficking violations when he made the request, but top White House lawyers and officials viewed the request for a preemptive pardon as a non-starter that would set a bad precedent. So this was never going anywhere. But look, Matt Gates is running around uh, in tweets, in public statements. He's supposed to speak at some conservative conference in Florida in a couple of days. Uh, it's, I think it's near Mar-a-Lago. Um, that he's done nothing wrong. There's nothing to be ashamed about. That he had an active dating life. But if he was seeking a pardon in advance, doesn't that suggest that he was worried about an eventual indictment? I mean, this is, changes the perception of his case. Aides told Mr. Trump of the request, though it was unclear whether Gates discussed, discussed the matter directly with the president. Now, Trump did ultimately pardon dozens of allies and others in his final months, including a number of uh, former Republican members of Congress who had been convicted of various serious crimes, but not for Matt Gates. In recent days, some Trump associates have speculated that Gates's request for group pardon was an attempt to camouflage his own potential criminal exposure. Okay, so we have a statement from a spokesman for Congressman Gates who says entry-level political operatives have conflated a pardon call from Representative Gates where he called for President Trump to pardon everyone from himself to his administration to Joe Exotic with these false and increasingly bizarre partisan allegations against him. That's a statement from the Gates spokesman. Those comments have been on the record for some time. President Trump even retweeted the congressman who tweeted them out himself. Uh, and this is from Gates' book, in case you missed it. I didn't happen to read Matt Gates's book. But the president has called me when I was in my car, asleep in the middle of the night on my Longworth office building cot, on the throne, on airplanes, in nightclubs, and even in the throes of passion, parentheses, yes, I answered. So Matt Gates, such a Trump loyalist that even if he's doing it, the president of the United States calls, he will stop doing it and answer the phone. But in retrospect, given all of the women that he's alleged to have pursued and perhaps this broke the law, that reads very differently. And not right now. Uh, and then also this business that he floated about quitting Congress and maybe he's going to go to Newsmax. I mean, it's all still a mystery. I don't know if he is going to be charged. He's entitled to the presumption of innocence, but the fact that he saw a pardon, even if it's, you know, was part of a, you know, Donald, you should pardon yourself, you should pardon your family, you should pardon um, members of Congress who are Republicans, you should pardon anybody, I don't know about Joe Exotic, anybody who might uh, face potential criminal charges because of this uh, awful environment, um, it just looks a little bit different right now. All right, number four. Uh, number four is the subject of leaks. And basically, what happened to all the leaks? There used to be so many leaks. Now we can't get any leaks. It's an absolute tragedy for journalists. Look, I'm not telling you anything you don't know when I say that the Trump White House was the leakiest White House in the history of America. 
Uh, it just it was. I mean, for four years, the place was like a sieve. And part of the reason for that was Donald Trump, not having been in politics, didn't come into office with a, a long list of people who had worked for him, political loyalists. So he had to kind of put together um, a ragtag team that included some uh, political veterans like Kellyanne Conway and Reince Priebus, who lasted about six months as chief of staff, had put together Steve Bannon, who had been the Breitbart guy, who had been a filmmaker, uh, who had been his campaign chairman, but wasn't, you know, previously had a lot of political experience, that included his son-in-law, Jared, that included his daughter, Ivanka, uh, that included, you know, people like Stephen Miller, just a whole collection of folks. And a lot of them did not like each other. And so there were constantly leaks about, well, Ivanka's done this and Bannon's done that. And there was a lot of leaking against Reince. Uh, Sean Spicer was another one um, who lasted six or seven months as the White House press secretary. And, you know, there were just all these feuds going on. And then the most amazing thing is that people who were in the White House or close allies of the president, they would leak against the president. They would say, oh, he doesn't know anything. Yeah, we saved his ass on this thing. Yeah, you know, he was going to go off, but we told him to shut up. I mean, the lack of loyalty. I mean, as a journalist, I love leaks. And, you know, I got my share of leaks in the White House when I was writing my book, Media Madness, and when I was just reporting for my daily column or for things I was going to say on, on Fox News. And, of course, second wave and third wave people came in. Um, you know, Rex Tillerson uh, and people like that. Jim Mattis left, and then John Bolton came in, and then he left, and, he, and, and it was a very acrimonious situation with Bolton, H.R. McMaster. I mean, you go through the list. There was a lot of turnover, and that's also... A prescription for leaks because you didn't have it all. I mean, uh, Omarosa. I mean, you forget about some of the colorful characters who served in the Trump administration. I bring all of this up because the Washington Post Paul Ferry has a pretty good piece today about, well, I'll just read you the lead. After two and a half months of Joe Biden's presidency, something is missing from the coverage, and that is leaks. Uh, all the juicy details we used to get about the president's behind-the-scenes conduct. And by the way, Donald Trump would leak himself. He, he said, I, I have this in my book, he said, talk about this. I mean, even people he was publicly at odds with, George Stephanopoulos, Chuck Todd, they would come in for off the records. Biden, uh, Trump would tell them things that would make it into the coverage. Sometimes Trump would call reporters. Sometimes he'd call conservative pundits. And, he, and, the, and the leaks would come directly from the president of the United States. Um... Now, we're not really getting to read the behind-the-scenes stories. Um, in the old days, there was always this, you know, um, remember Anthony Scaramucci, he came in and he said, I'm going to crack down on leaks. 11 days later, he's out on his butt. Uh, and he just signed a deal with CNBC. So he's certainly, you know, he obviously turned on Trump and became one of his fiercest critics. But anyway, the leaks went unplugged for nearly four years. And the leaks continued after the January 6th riot with Trump contesting election, well, we think he's going to settle down. Yeah, he's going to gracefully concede one of these days. Yeah, that didn't happen. Anyway, you go to the Biden White House, when the $1.9 trillion stimulus package was taking shape, uh, the Post story says readers and viewers had very few glimpses into how Biden and his advisors molded it. There were no leaks describing inside-the-room scenes of aides hashing out the president's priorities. I mean, you don't even get much when it would serve Biden's interests in what I call authorized leaks. It's been a little bit of that, but you don't get, you know, Biden slammed his fist on the desk and said, uh, damn it, I need to get this through the Senate. I don't care what it takes, you know, that kind of thing. They just don't seem to play that game. Um, now we've got the $2 trillion infrastructure and job creation bill. 
there have been some inside accounts, says the Post, about the mechanics behind the massive plan, but how, for example, did the big expenditures on broadband connections or clean energy or housing for seniors or home care for seniors come about? We just don't know. Peter Baker of the New York Times quoted in the Post story as saying, no question the Trump White House leaked a lot, especially in the early days when the tribal rivalries were fiercest. The Biden people have come in more disciplined, and so far we haven't had as much insight, says Baker, into the behind-the-scenes fights and debates inside the White House. Another White House reporter unnamed uh, saying Biden's White House is effectively a leak-proof operation. Now, it's a pretty basic explanation for this. Biden came into office. Look, the guy had been a senator for 36 years, eight years as VP. So he had a whole list, a whole long coterie of loyalists and aides. And these include Ron Klain, now his chief of staff, Anita Dunn. She had worked uh, in the Obama White House as communications director, very close to uh, Biden for a long time. Mike Donilon, uh, Steve Fraschetti, and others. Um, Jen Psaki had worked in the Obama White House. So Joe Biden knew all these people. So they all work together. They're not out to get each other. They're not out to one-up each other. So they're not leaking in the in the classic sense of, well, you know, so-and-so brought a proposal, but it was shot down, or so-and-so is trying to convince President Biden to do such-and-such, such, uh, but we don't think he's going to do it. We either have personal feuds or you're trying to gain some advantage in boosting your own vision of, uh, of how the White House what the White House should be pushing, or even, you know, behind the scenes of, you know, Biden talking to McConnell or Biden talking to Schumer or Biden talking to Pelosi. They're just not playing the game. Now, obviously, it's early days. Um, And so when things go wrong, when you have a crisis, when you're doing damage control, then you're in a situation where the leak-proof places can become leakier as people try to save their own butts or um, settle arguments in the press. Uh, so journalists, you know, are missing this. It's like, oh, it's so much more fun to cover the Trump White House. They all hate each other. They were so leaky. Um, but from Biden's point of view, message discipline, no leaks, is a pretty good thing. Now, they probably could play ball a little bit more in terms of colorful behind-the-scenes stuff with the press, but this is how they're choosing to do it. Uh, number five, you remember the Virginia Lieutenant Governor Justin Fairfax He was accused uh, back in 2019 by two different women of sexual assault. There were tremendous calls for him to resign at the same time that the governor, they're both Democrats, Ralph Northam, was facing pressure to resign over uh, revelations that he had worn blackface. That was like three decades earlier. So right now, there's a new race shaping up for the governor's uh, mansion because in Virginia, you have a one-term limit. And the former governor, Terry McAuliffe, is running He wants his old office back. And there was a debate on Tuesday, and one of the people running for governor is the lieutenant governor, Justin Fairfax, despite the fact that he had had those accusations. Here's what he said in the debate. Everyone on this stage has called for my immediate resignation, including Terry McAuliffe, three minutes after a press release came out. He treated me like George Floyd. He treated me like Emmett Till. No due process immediately assumed my guilt. Well, it's true. They called for Fairfax to resign in the wake of these very serious allegations. Did he really need to compare himself to a guy who died uh, in Minneapolis because an officer had a knee on his neck for nine and a half minutes? Did he really have to compare himself to Emmett Till, a a young victim of a lynching? I just think that was way, way, way over the top. Is he trying to appeal to black voters with that? All right. And finally, number six. 
There's a race on for mayor of New York City. The primary is in June. Nobody knows who's going to win. There isn't a clear front runner. But Atlantic Magazine has a piece saying, you know what? Andrew Yang could win this thing. Andrew Yang obviously ran for president. He had never had any prior political experience. He ran a pretty good campaign for a guy who was completely and totally unknown. He's had just kind of a profile of Yang. He's out there making these proposals like, why doesn't the city hire 10,000 recent college graduates to tutor the 100,000 public school kids suffering the most from learning loss during the pandemic? Uh, He says, I'm a public school parent myself. The year has been terrible for kids. Anyway, the headline of this thing is, Andrew Yang could be the next mayor of New York City. It's kind of understood. There hasn't been a Republican mayor since Rudy, and then Bloomberg won as a Republican, but then he was obviously a Democrat, just trying to get himself elected, and now he's a Democrat, as you know. The most recent poll shows that Andrew Yang is actually leading a very crowded field with 16%, and Eric Adams, who is the Brooklyn Borough President, has 10%. Um, They've been out in the field more. Uh, Next down, you have Maya Wiley, who's visible mainly as a former MSNBC analyst. She's on MSNBC all the time. She had worked for the New York Times. She was a counsel to outgoing Mayor Bill de Blasio. She's got 6%. Scott Stringer, the controller, 5%. A former city executive, city bank executive, Raymond McGuire, 4%. Sean Donovan, former HUD secretary. I didn't even know some of these people were running. I mean, it is a muddle. I mean, I grew up in New York City. I know a lot of New York politics. I have no idea who's going to win. Uh, maybe because he's got the the name ID, and obviously he's got a, a base among Asian Americans, and obviously he proved to be a bigger campaigner. Maybe Andrew Yang is the closest thing to a celebrity in the race, and he can come in and win this nomination and be the next mayor. But I can't remember a time when the field was so low profile and, and the nomination was so wide open. I mean, going back to John Lindsay, who had been a congressman, going back to Ed Koch, who had been a congressman, Going back to David Dinkins, who had been Manhattan Borough President, well-established in New York when he ran and won. Rudy Giuliani had been the U.S. Attorney in Manhattan. Everybody knew he was running for years. Uh, Mike Bloomberg, he had no political experience, but he was very well known because of the establishment of Bloomberg News. And then, of course, you had Bill de Blasio. They all were political fixtures in the city. Uh, We didn't know who they were all going to win, but they certainly were contenders. This is a weird field. It's the most important mayor's job in the country. Can Andrew Yang do it? I don't know, but we'll talk more about it. Thanks for listening. Remember, you can subscribe at Google Podcasts. Get it on your Amazon device. Go to Amazon Music or at Apple iTunes. See you tomorrow with more BuzzFeed. This is Jimmy Fallon, inviting you to join me for Fox Across America, where we'll discuss every single one of the Democrats' dumb ideas. Just kidding. It's only a three-hour show. Listen live at noon Eastern or get the podcast at foxacrossamerica.com.